This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, are we addicted to achievement? We're asking today's big question to Dr. Justine Toe. Justine is a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity, where she regularly speaks and writes about the Christian faith in the Australian media. Justine has a PhD in Cultural Studies from Macquarie University and admits to being a recovering achievement addict. And she joins me now. Justine, welcome to Bigger Questions. Hey there, thanks for having me. It's great that you can join us here today, Justine. To kick off Bigger Questions, we like to ask some smaller questions just to get us thinking. Today we're asking Dr. Justine Toe about achievement. So Justine, for our smaller questions today, I'm going to ask you about tiger parenting, which is a strict authoritative method of parenting, which is meant to raise high achieving children. Now, Justine, are you familiar with tiger parenting at all? I think you know the answer to this, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) So tiger parenting was first introduced Actually, I don't know if it was first introduced by Amy Chua, but um, she's a Yale law professor and she published a book called Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother 10 years ago today. Well, maybe not today, but this year. And, yeah, um, yeah, so she was talking about her own um, way of parenting her children, which has this incredible focus on academic results and achievement. And she she would talk about how she would write out very careful, detailed notes uh commenting on what they need to do to improve their piano performance etc all this sort of thing so yeah i am familiar with tiger parenting not to the same degree and level let's say as what she was doing with her children um but i grew up in a chinese malaysian family and i think the experience of lots of kids with asian backgrounds would be that their parents insist upon high achievement and good academic results. But, you know, as I worked, as I was working on this book and reading the work of Christina Ho, who's a lecturer at the University of Technology in Sydney, I really appreciated her work because she studies the way that a lot of Asian migrant parents really care about selective schooling, for example, Mm -hmm. and and trying to ace the, the test to get into those schools. She also really helped me see that It makes total sense why a lot of Asian migrants, particularly coming to a country like Australia, would want to make sure that their children can succeed because they don't have the connections, they Mm. don't have the familiarity of of being in this nation for for long enough to to be able to develop those links with people. And so they want impeccable credentials because how can you argue with that? You know, So (laughs) so it's good to kind of get the other side of it as well. And particularly for someone like me who had a lot of experience of that and, and quite a lot of resentment, I think you might pick up from the book as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's you're obviously very well credentialed or very, very well read and understood about what uh, tiger parenting is. Now, I do have just one question about tiger parenting. It's our smaller question for today. And it's just one question and it's multiple choice. Okay. So which of these behaviors is most appropriate then for someone labeled a tiger parent? Is it A, allowing their child to go to a sleepover for their best friend's birthday? Is it B, expecting top grades in every exam? Is it C, allowing an appropriate amount of TV watching each week? Or is it D, limiting video games to just an hour a day? So which of those is most appropriate for someone labelled a tiger parent? I think everyone should yell at the same time what they think it is. And the answer would be B, I would say. (laughs) It would be, yes, indeed. So, Justin, you are a high achiever. You passed. You got our smaller question right. And if we had a live audience here today, 
they'd give you a big round of applause. Oh, and I'd feel so fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) It's an achievement for you. It's an achievement. (laughs) So, Justine, so you've talked, as you mentioned, you've talked a bit about Tiger Mums in your book, um, Achievement Addiction. Now, is this a stereotype of Asian high achievers, though? It is a stereotype, and I think it's, I was going to be stumbling into one of the biggest issues in education in this country. No right. one wants to be called a racist, um, <laughs> and no one wants to be um, obviously seen to be resenting the fact that a lot of selective schools have mostly dark-haired populations among their right. students. Um, and so I get how complicated it is. So I'm in this position where it's like, okay, I want to call out what I see the harms of this achievement addiction, but at the same time, I don't want to license racism as well. Mm. So that's a difficult thing. But I think one thing that writing this book taught me was that even though the people like me, okay, Asian migrant kids um, might be more obviously addicted to achievement for the reasons we've already discussed, my focus was on saying, oh, all you other people out there, you think you're not addicted. You think you can point the finger, maybe subtly, at someone who doesn't look like you and say, oh, the problem's just with them. But really, mm. I wanted people to say, oh, actually, maybe this, this is all of our problems and it just doesn't look the same, mm. right? And this is another thing as well. You know, I talk about in the book how the focus on high marks, etc., was what success looked like for my family. But obviously not everyone is like that, you know. For other people, success looks like rejecting the conventional pathway to success, which might be, you know, the the thing that my parents held up as the the be-all and end-all, getting the the job, the house, the family, et cetera. For some people, it's living an adventurous life and rejecting the establishment way. It's like that is what success means to them. Sampling food from foreign countries, for example. Yeah, that's right. And being able to be eclectic, I guess, in your yes. in your taste, yes. etc. So yeah, so I think if if this book helps people to, I guess, scrutinize what their picture of success is and how much they feel that they have either hit that or fallen short about that, and then what that brings up for them, then mm. I will think, okay, good. Everyone can recognize to to some degree that they're also addicted to achievement. So you're saying then that tiger parenting or, or, or any type of parenting is connected to a, a sort of a d- deep human desire for success or and connecting success to achievement? Yeah, I think really what I'm trying to use the tiger parenting as a window into is the way that we um, make an equation that our hard work is supposed to translate to worthiness, if that makes sense. So the more yeah. that you work, the more you matter, I suppose. Um, so I've got two kids, one in kindy, one in year one. They teach them about grit and growth mindset all the time. And this is that idea that you don't have to be naturally smart. No one is born smart. You can always get smarter and that you do that by pushing yourself and achieving, right? And uh, yeah, just and not giving up. And I think that's true and I really want my kids to learn that. But I mm. think that what we don't talk about is the fact that there's other um, information that they're absorbing in the process of learning that, which is that the harder that you work, the more you'll be able to feel proud of yourself and um, base a sense of self-worth upon that. And I don't want to dismiss that entirely, but I think mm. we don't talk enough about that to to gently critique it. Mm. So you've written a book, Achievement Addiction. So is it too much then to describe achievement as addiction? I don't think that it necessarily needs to be an addiction, right? Mm-hmm. As in, And then therefore you really have to uh, reject it in order to have a 
have a good um, life. I think it's just like anything really that your relationship to whatever it is can get out of hand. Right? Um, I think it was Augustine, um, the saint who famously said about God, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Mm. And there's been plenty of other work done in recent years talking about how the human is essentially a lover, not a thinker. This is the work of James K.A. Smith. And uh, what he's suggesting along the lines of Augustine is that our life has to revolve around something and mm. uh, perhaps we've been made for God and our lives should revolve around him. But if not, it's going to find our life will find something else to revolve around. And for me, what that has looked like is getting good marks <laughs> and doing a good job. So why is that bad though? Why is it bad to you know get good jobs and want to do well in life? It's not that it's bad. I mean, obviously you need to eat. You need to be able to provide for the people who depend on you. All of that is good, but it's all the other extra stuff that goes on in the background that um, we don't talk about. And I can, but I can tell you, there are so many women I know who um, feel, and I'd say, and I'm sure men feel like this as well, but I'm just more aware of what the women are going through that when they don't achieve something or when they don't get that promotion or they don't get that job, that the level of self-loathing in some ways that can be involved is profound. So it's clearly not like a, to, to get that job or to not get that job is what it is. Um, but it's it's the kinds of highs that you feel when you do get the job or mm. the, the crushing lows that you feel when you don't get the job that I think suggests that something is seriously out of whack there. So the mm. achievement is not the problem. It's how you are in relation to the achievement. Now, you mentioned before one of the consequences of this is self-loathing perhaps. So is there a sense then in which achievement is then connected to our personal identity and self-worth? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, when I put it, I mean, I put it in the terms of self-loathing, but I'm also keen to stress that while this book does kind of have a a slight kind of, you know, personal growth aspect to it, um, the stuff that I'm talking about is like goes right to the heart of some of the biggest crises that were that we've lived through in recent times. So, for example, I draw on the work of Michael Sandel and Daniel Markovitz from Yale, and both of those guys actually have said that the idea of meritocracy, right, that we live in mm. a system where you, through your hard work, can make a success of your life, that the, the, our meritocratic world has been at the heart of Brexit, right, the vote to leave the European Union, and also the election of Trump, okay, in, in the US. And what they mean by that is that it's like it's like society, we've seen a big division between the meritocratic elites, the people who work for the West Wing. I'm sure, you know, your, your listeners will know what I mean. So you're really fast talking people like me in some ways, you know, well-educated, yeah. um, clever, smart, they can run things. Th there's been a division between those guys and the people who aren't necessarily that well-credentialed might have more working class or blue collar jobs. And in some ways, um, these guys, Markovitz and Sandel were saying that what is at the heart of both those events is this rejection of the meritocratic elite that this idea that you think you're better than me that just because you've got you know fancy degrees and you dress like that whatever you think that you're better so that's not necessarily a self-loathing if you don't achieve but there is something of that nature going on in those at the heart of those big events that we've seen play out so mm. yeah so there is there is a self-loathing in a personal sense but it can also be um 
a feeling of rejection and not belonging and then that can play out in big ways as well. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've just outlined in many ways your book is called uh, Achievement Addiction. So why do you think that our culture is so addicted to achievement and this meritocracy? Oh, man, that's a big question. Um, that's what we're here for. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, it is. Um, I Look, I mean, I don't think, put it this way, right, if I can make a give a specific example in lockdown the last thing i expected was for house prices to go through the roof okay Mm. and that's like a national thing even though the growth has been most pronounced in sydney and melbourne um but like i think that we're addicted to achievement because our economic system demands it of us right like if you need uh, the income of two people in order to even have a hope of buying a house then you're on a you're in a life that demands that you are constantly thinking about your your work and being able to provide in that way because of what you want a roof over your head right um, mm. but it's also the case that we're also addicted to achievement I think because the only way to understand what we've achieved is in relation to what someone else has achieved or has not achieved right so in some ways it can be a bit of a status game like I think it's really significant that in a school context everyone's given a numerical mark. But that numerical mark only makes sense in relation to what other people got. Let's be honest, right? And once, and we have that system in school, you graduate with an ATAR, an Australian Tertiary Admissions Rating, that essentially rates you. And mm. then as you go on through life, you get a job, you know, what you get paid, etc. All of this has the effect of ranking you in a system. And so maybe it's the case that the people who do have a roof over their heads you know, like maybe mm. the person next to them has a better option. And so why shouldn't I try and go for that if I can work hard? And because it, it says something about me as well. It says it speaks to my success in life. Yeah. Is, there, is it also connected to that idea you mentioned before, that restlessness in our hearts that we are looking for something to kind of fill a void, so to speak. So we're looking for achievements to somehow do that as well. Yeah. And I can definitely speak um, from personal experience here. I mean, I think because of my upbringing and because of other things as well, I suppose I've had this complex lifelong about, am I smart? Right. And this, and this right. is obviously matters to me very much because perhaps it was the, what um, my parents kind of you know, made me think about, um, which I'm very grateful for as well. But I can, yes. I can, I'm, I see it. I, I hope in a in a bigger picture way. So I, I'm a pre- I appreciate it, but I'm also, um, I can I can recognize the harms as well. And so I found myself at one point doing this doctorate, um, in order to I think once and for all prove this question for myself. Mm. Am I smart? That's right. But the irony of like writing a hundred thousand words to have three letters PhD or, or two letters doctor um, sort of certify my existence and my smart existence, if I can put it in those terms, um, is like unbelievable. Like, do you think after getting that doctorate, I, I felt any better? No. Do you think after I wrote this book and published it, I felt any better? No. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah, so I definitely am a recovering achievement addict. And you'll notice that that is very much like resting an, an identity, my identity on achievements. It's based on what I've done, right? Mm. Which obviously goes to the opposite of what I'm suggesting in the book is the, is the actual reality of the situation. Um, but it's a way of kind of like being a heroic savior of your own world in some ways because look at what you've overcome look at all the things that you've done look at all the ways that even if you're beaten down and strung out and tired and exhausted but man you did this Mm. like i 
get that high. <laughs> yeah. Well, then, then comes a problem, doesn't it? Because when you get to the next challenge, you're not sure if you can actually get over that. <laughs> and so hence the, it raises insecurities as to whether or not, you know, I've got it, did it before, but can I do it again? I'm not sure. No, that's right. I mean, I remember someone, uh, wasn't the most, I can't remember the guy, he's like a, at one point the richest man in the world and someone asked him, how much money is enough? And he's like, just a bit more. And it's exactly <laughs> the same idea, just with the different thing. It's not wealth yes, I'm chasing, right. it's achievement. So you've talked about, obviously you've raised this issue in your book. Is there a solution or is there a path to joy for recovering achievement addicts? Wouldn't that be hilarious if I outlined a path to joy that had its own form of the to-do list, right? <laughs> Achieve your own your own victory over achievement. Here is the that's, secret. So, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, my book is not in that personal growth kind of way that, that offers you an agenda for how you might triumph um, on the other side of this. I think I really, what I really wanted to do was to just get people to imagine this idea that we are living in a cultural story where achievement is positioned as a very important thing that needs to matter so deeply to you. And all I really wanted to do was to bring that cultural story into conversation with a Christian story, specifically a parable that Jesus told of the workers in the vineyard. Um, and just say, wow, look at what story is projected or what world is projected from the story that Jesus tells and how does that compare with and how does that illuminate some of the blind spots, let's say, of our own cultural story of achievement? Because mm. I think, Rob, that stories are tools of change, right? They are radical. Yeah. They announce a different way and especially with Jesus being the one to, to say, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Imagine this. Mm. Like, that is incredible because it's like this is the world that, you, the world that you're in. We, don't, we just recognize it as reality, but it's really we're living in a story, but what we need is a better story to live into, and I think that's mm. what Jesus does in that uh, parable. Well, why don't, why don't we have a look at that parable? Because as you said, in the Gospel of Matthew, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have, Jesus does share a parable about workers who are hired to work in a landowner's vineyard. Now, they were all hired at different times in the day and all agreed to work in the end for the same pay, one denarius. But at the end of the day, when they were all paid, some weren't happy. And it says in Matthew 20, 11 to 12, when they received it, their pay, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So, Justine, do you appreciate their disgruntlement? It seems a bit unfair to be paying the same for one hour's work as a whole day. Uh, myself, as an achievement addict and anyone else who decides that they are an achievement addict would identify hugely with the people who are angry that they got cheated, <laughs> right? Like I'm sitting there going, I did all that work. Doesn't any of that count? <laughs> what do you mean you're going to pay them the same amount? The same? No. Because yeah. as I said, right, what I've achieved um, only makes sense in relation to what someone else did or did yes, not achieve. that's right, yeah. And so yeah. those workers, what Jesus is identifying makes total sense. It hits very close to home, this parable. <laughs> right, yes. Well, then Jesus answers them by saying, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So Justine, how does Jesus' answer here speak to our world? 
focused on achievement. Yeah, wow. Do you know the biggest thing that jumps out at me is 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 the way Jesus says, "What's your problem? I'm really generous. <laughs> what does it matter to you? You yes. agreed to work for this. Who cares if I'm generous, right?" That's right. Yeah. And so and I love that because it takes the focus off what someone has done to deserve their pay, so to speak, but it actually puts the focus back where it belongs, which is on the generosity of the mm. landowner, i.e. God, I suppose, in this parable. And so it's true. It's like, look, the achievement addict really uh, wants to think about and is, is totally preoccupied with their own efforts, their own successes, what they've done in order to get to this point. But really this parable invites you to appreciate the reverse of that, which is that mm. maybe what counts most in life is not what you have achieved, but what you have received. And that mm. in a way actually puts everyone on an equal playing field because those critics of meritocracy that I earlier talked about have said, it's actually not a system of equal opportunity. It does, it's not about like, you know, because formerly in an aristocracy, you were born to your position in life. You could be born a peasant, you could be born the king and no one, no, no you didn't do anything to earn or, or not earn that. That's just how it was. But in a meritocracy, the son of the king and the son of a peasant are in an equal playing field situation. But really what it ends up doing is kind of saying, oh, the ones who work the hardest are the, are the worthiest, right? Which is exactly mm. what this is, this is what the, what the workers are saying um, in this parable. And yet, Really, the, the the picture of God's kingdom that Jesus sketches out for us is one of not equal opportunity, so to speak, but equal value and equal love and equal grace, right? So mm. it's not dependent on what you've done. The, the playing field is leveled by the fact that Jesus is equally gracious to everyone. Mm. And that makes people like me really angry. <laughs> and really humbled. Um, but at the same time, it makes total sense. You know, like I did nothing yeah. to be born into a family that valued achievement. I did nothing mm. to be born into this country, which gave me the opportunities that I have. I did nothing to be born into this century, which allowed me to be able to have these opportunities in the first place. So mm. why don't we focus more on what we've been given rather than mm. what we've you know, done to earn anything? Well, so the last sentence that Jesus says here, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Uh, that, does that take the sting out of some of our achievement addiction perhaps? And also maybe is that a, a challenge to the, the tiger parenting mindset? I mean, I don't know how a tiger parent would respond to that, that the last <laughs> will be first and the first will be last. That's terrible. Well, it's it's a really provocative picture, isn't it, of what ultimate reality is about. Um, we live in a survival of the fittest world sort of thing, right, where it is a desperate scrabble for limited resources and so you do what you can to survive and thrive. But if, as Jesus says, the first will be last and the last will be first, then really what he's encouraging us to do is to say, do you know what, you can get deceived by the different status games that you play, right? You think that this person is better because they're richer or they're more beautiful or they're cleverer or they have a better job or a bigger house or a better car, whatever. But it's like, no, everyone matters, right? And it doesn't, and all those worldly kind of ways that we use to gain status over each other, they count for nothing in the end because in the end it's about you being before God and none of that matters. So if you think about it, that, that gives you the grounds to understand that everyone is equal and that like, you know, a girl in a favela in Brazil uh, living in a slum um, and, you know, Joe Biden 
there's no actual difference between them really mm. in God's mm. eyes. That is an incredibly provocative vision and one that should humble the, the tiger parents and the achievement addicts of this world and does when, you know, if I think about it hard enough. Um, and I just think, wow, do you know, this, this grace just knows no end and it really does overturn the world and everything that we think about the world. So I'm like, I think amazing. <laughs> amazing grace. Yes. Yeah. So does this mean though that Christianity denies human achievement? So a commenter on Reddit once claimed that Christianity is evil and anti-human because they claimed all of the amazing and good things that humans have done mean nothing according to Christianity. At best, such accomplishments are laughably inadequate attempts to overcome the burden of sin with earthly works, or at worst, there are hubristic challenges to God's infinite glory. Nothing humans do can ever satisfy their creator. So does the Christian faith and the appeal to grace deny and undervalue human achievements? This is a good question. I think that Reddit commenter was a little bit influenced by Nietzsche somehow. Um, <laughs> but I do think that there is a really good challenge here that, um, yeah, does it, are we the slackers, I suppose? <laughs> I think in the in terms of the spiritual sense, yes, we are the slackers. We don't believe you can earn your way to God. Mm. But at the same time, this does in no way licenses a, do you know what, let's just cruise on through life because no problem, you know, whatever I do doesn't count for anything in the end. You're not saved by what you do, but you're saved to do things, right? And I mm. think that what better way to honour what you've been given by God uh, than by doing the best work that you possibly can, right? Mm. But in a way that, um, again, it gets tricky because achievement addicts like me have a terrible radar for this sort of thing, but in a way that is life-giving and doesn't mm. end up um, grinding you up or stealing you away from the lives of those who depend upon you and those you love. So mm. I think it's tricky and um, that we need to make sure that we have those tensions, right? But I think that one beautiful way that we can honor God is to do amazing work. So, mm. but, and I realize that sounds ironic and a little strange perhaps yeah. in light of what I've been saying about achievement in general, but yeah, I'm, I'm willing but to, the motivation to is very that. different. The motivation different, is different. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not in order to be something it's because you are something. Yeah. And there's a freedom yeah. in that. Yeah. 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 So then Justin, as a self-confessed recovering achievement addict, what difference has the Christian faith made for you? It's made a, an incredible difference. Like I, I wouldn't suggest for a moment that, you know, the genesis of this book happened the moment I became a Christian, as in like, I was, oh, I was raised by people who taught me to strive, strive, strive for any sense of significance in this life. And look, the gospel says that my significance is not dependent on my striving. This is the answer for me. No, it wasn't like that. But as I've gone on in my Christian journey, I was there going like, how come no one's talking about this? Why does no one call this out and say this is a problem? And I just mm. wondered whether my particular biography provided an opportunity to talk about this thing. And I think it actually is a central um, aspect of the Christian faith, the, the, the primacy of grace and the fact that God has been so mm. kind to all of us. So, Justine, are we addicted to achievement? Yes, we are addicted to achievement, but there is hope for us. And that is always good news uh, because I believe very strongly that our life and everyone's life does not depend on what we do, but on what we very gratefully, hopefully, receive. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, are we addicted to achievement from Matthew 2016? So the last will be first and the first will be last. 
I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Dr. Justine Toe. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Thanks for listening to this show. Now, we do have a special offer for our podcast listeners for you today. i got Justine Toe here now to tell us. Now, Justine, we have something special. What are you offering to our podcast listeners? I am offering a signed copy of my book. (laughs) Wow, that really is a great offer. The book is Achievement Addiction, and we have five free copies available for the first five people who reach out to me. All you have to do is send me an email at robert.martin at citybibleforum.org and say, I'd love a free book, and you can get a free copy, and we'll post it out to you. It's that simple. Now, I've read the book, and I think it's excellent, and I certainly recommend it. Uh, So please send me an email, robert.martin at citybibleforum.org and say, I want a free book and we'll send you a copy. Now, Justine, what do you hope people will get out of the book? I hope people will laugh. I hope people will see themselves, I suppose, um, in them. And I hope that, you know, if you like Hamilton or Harry Potter or The West Wing, I hope you'll have a bit of a chuckle as you read through it as well. Um, but yeah, no, mostly I just hope that you come to an understanding of where you fit into this picture and and ask yourself the question, what am I striving for? And what am I hoping to prove by doing that? I think that would be a really good thing to think about. So it's a fantastic offer made available only to our Patreon supporters and podcast listeners. So send me an email and we'd love to send you a copy of Justine's book. Now, I look forward to you joining us next week when we ask Andrew Palau the big question, is Jesus boring? Here's a sneak peek. Well, maybe it is a little boring. You want to live a wild life? I was there. It was fantastic. It was crazy. I was the wildest. No, nothing boring about it. But despairing? Yes. Oh, horrifying. I I lived that. I lived it up. You know, the world called to me and said, live it up. Don't be a boring. And I said, I don't want to be boring. I'm going to live it up. But my dad would always share with me these truths from the Bible that just reveal what life is really like so truly. That's next week. Andrew Palau, Is Jesus Boring? So thanks again for listening. And remember to keep asking the bigger questions.